Uh, you can open your Bible to Ephesians. We're going to be there a little bit tonight. Start this new series called Soldier Up. We'll talk about that. From beginning to end, the Bible is a book describing a war. In the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, God spoke of ultimate fighting when he told the serpent that he would bruise his head while the serpent would bruise his heel. It wasn't a one-time match. It was a description of the unfolding of human history of two kingdoms that would, for an age, be in constant conflict. In the end, in the book of the Revelation, there is one last serpent-led battle on the earth, for the earth, before he is cast alive into the lake of fire to be tormented in defeat forever and ever. Between Genesis and the Revelation is a record of the serpent's constant interference with the plan of God to come into the human race as a man and redeem lost humanity. The serpent, who is Satan, is powerful. We're told that Satan is the prince of this world. That's John 12, 31. He's the god of this age, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. John writes in his first letter that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That's 1 John 5, 19. While God remains sovereign over his creation, Satan is allowed to exercise a great amount of evil activity upon the earth. His greatest hostilities are directed against God's redemptive plan in and through Jesus Christ and, of course, against God's people. Satan goes about on the earth like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's 1 Peter 5, 8. Satan is not alone in his opposition to God. The Old Testament informs us that one-third of the created angels rebelled with Satan and now work with him against God. These are described as principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's from Ephesians chapter 6. We see one of these minions briefly but terrifyingly in the book of Daniel. As Daniel prayed, God dispatched Gabriel to him to deliver the famous prophecy of the 70 weeks. Gabriel was delayed, however, in a struggle with a demon he called the prince of Persia. I'll read the verse to you. It's Daniel 10, 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. A major part of Jesus' ministry in his first coming was to overcome the power of the devil. Jesus battled Satan and defeated him one-on-one -on -one in the temptation in the wilderness. He went about casting out demons, delivering their hosts from all manner of evil that they were inflicting. At one point, he landed on a beach, literally off of a boat, almost like a military invasion, and he did battle with what turned out to be a legion of demons soundly trouncing them. He explained to his disciples that he had the power to bind the strong man, as he put it. He was referring to Satan, and he could establish in place of Satan's rule the kingdom of heaven on the earth. The leaders of the nation of Israel rejected Jesus, and with him they rejected that kingdom for a time. The devil, who would have been bound, was allowed to run free he was allowed to roam about as the devouring lion seeking to rob and kill and destroy. He will be bound one day in the future. Describing the second coming, John wrote in the Revelation, this is in chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, 
and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. After the thousand years of the kingdom of heaven on earth, the devil will be released from that pit, but only for a short while before he is cast alive into the lake of fire to suffer for eternity. We live in this present evil age ruled by the devil looking forward to the age to come and to eternity beyond that. It's a war zone. We are soldiers in a spiritual war. Now, here's the thing. While we all as Christians consent to the truth that we are soldiers, we need to come to the awareness we are not weekend warriors. We are not reservists who may or may not be called into active duty. And there is no term to our tour of duty. We are lifers in the Lord's army as long as we are on this earth. We, all of us, are on the battlefield. And that's why I'm calling this series on spiritual warfare, Soldier Up, because spiritual warfare conjures up certain images, but what it should remind us of is that we are soldiers on the battlefield and we need to equip ourselves. Now, I want us to gain what is being called a warfare worldview. One of the books I'm reading puts it this way. The author says, there's a tendency for people in some circles to think of spiritual warfare as a specialized form of ministry rather than a descriptive phrase characterizing our common struggle as believers. Thus, for many people, to speak of spiritual warfare is to speak of exorcism, deliverance ministry, taking authority in the name of Jesus against the enemy, or special forms of authoritative prayer. Certainly, these are aspects of spiritual warfare, but no single ministry exhausts our understanding of spiritual warfare. We need to begin thinking about spiritual warfare in a broad way. Spiritual warfare is a way of characterizing our common struggle as Christians. Whether we want to think about it or not, the truth is that we all face supernatural opposition as we set out to live the Christian life. Another author wrote a little bit more bluntly, he says, Jesus' teaching, his exorcisms, his healings, and other miracles remain somewhat incoherent and unrelated to one another until we interpret them as acts of war. Now, we've said that the warfare worldview began in the Garden of Eden, and it persists throughout the Bible until the creation of the new heavens and the new earth in the last chapters of the Bible's last book. That means we should be able to put in almost anywhere in the Bible and talk about spiritual warfare. Or at the very least, we should have it as our worldview and comment on it as we are reading and studying anywhere in the Word. In other words, it's a, it's a topic that should come up all the time. Still, there are a few major classic passages that especially highlight spiritual warfare. I'm not going to exhaust them, but the four that come to mind right now are Ephesians chapter 6. That has to be high on anybody's list, for it's there that we are told to put on the whole armor of God in order to stand against our adversary and his principalities and his powers and the rulers of the darkness and the spiritual hosts of wickedness. It's maybe the classic passage that a believer would think of when we mention spiritual warfare. 2 Corinthians 10 comes to mind, for it's there we are told to tear down enemy strongholds. The devil's temptation of Jesus that we mentioned earlier has to be on any list of scriptures that you look at when you're dealing with spiritual warfare because it was Jesus 
filled with the Spirit, not acting as God, though He was fully God, but acting as a man in the power and the energy of the Spirit, uh, turning away the tempter himself, not just any run-of-the-mill temptation, but the tempter himself, Satan, and three really powerful temptations. And we've got to take a look at Daniel 10 and the angelic wrestling match that took place there between Gabriel and the prince of Persia and later Michael tagging in uh, so that Gabriel could be set free on his mission to Daniel. So those are some of the areas of Scripture that you can imagine, uh, not imagine, that, you, that we will be taking a look at in subsequent weeks. I want to begin, though, with a passage in Ephesians not chapter 6, that gives us a balanced perspective on our overall approach to spiritual warfare. Because, as I briefly mentioned, when you mention spiritual warfare, there's a tendency to think of only one dimension of it, the demonic, things like possessions and exorcisms and the occult, things along those lines. And and that's, that's the average person, you say spiritual warfare, and they think of the exorcist or you know, any number of occult activities. Uh, And and that, it includes that, but we need to think broader than that because our warfare is bigger than that. Uh, It's far broader in its scope. The devil and his ilk are not our only enemies. And when you put it that way, you remember that the world and our flesh, along with the devil, are the three things that we are at war against as Christians. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 mentions them all. If you're there, uh, Ephesians 2, 1, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, there's the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. There's the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Among the things that we learn in this section is that prior to meeting Jesus Christ, a person has no spiritual life. You are spiritually dead. You are physically dying, and if you continue as you were born, you will experience what the Bible calls the second death, which is a resurrection to judgment and eternal suffering in hell. And so when Paul says you are dead in trespasses and sins, you're certainly alive physically, you're soulishly active, mind, will, and emotions, those kinds of things, but you're spiritually dead. It's what is the result of uh, what the Lord told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In the day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will what? Surely die. They died spiritually. They began to die physically, and, but for the intervention of God in human history, they would have died eternally. They would have experienced the second death raised before the great white throne of God to be cast alive into the lake of fire. And so that's the condition of every human being born into the world. If you've never been born again, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't come to the cross of Jesus Christ, you are dead in trespasses and sins spiritually dead, physically dying, which should be obvious to you. Uh, We're all going to die. Uh, But should you die in your sins without the aid of Jesus Christ, you will be raised to eternal damnation. It's uh, something more than to just think about. It's something to deal with tonight if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. 
Now, in the garden, God promised that he would come, and, and he did in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God the Holy Spirit is now in the world seeking to convict men, women, and children who can understand of sin, of righteousness, and of this judgment to come. That's his mission, to reveal Christ to hearts, convicting them of sin, that they are sinners, of righteousness, the fact they have no righteousness apart from Jesus, and of the judgment to come should they die in their sins. Uh, By His grace, the Lord frees the will so that a person can choose to repent and receive Jesus as their Savior. A way of describing this transformation is to say that God has, and this is from Colossians 1.13, delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And so we're, we see the two kingdoms that are in conflict, the powers of darkness, the kingdom of the devil. We are delivered from it into and conveyed over into the kingdom of God uh, to share in His love. You were under the power of darkness, a captive of the devil in his kingdom. When you get saved, you're delivered from his kingdom and conveyed into God's. You therefore need no longer be subject to the power of the world or the devil or the flesh. Now, what do we mean by the world? Well, the world consists in part of the ungodly and therefore spiritually unhealthy influences that exert pressure on us every day to disregard or to disobey God. It is everything and anything that opposes God or minimizes His centrality. Uh, And so that is what we mean by the world. What do we mean by the flesh? The flesh is not my physical body and its normal appetites and drives. The flesh is something that is left over after I am saved lingering evilly in my mind. It's a propensity to desire sin. It is a lusting after fulfilling my appetites in sinful ways. It it remains as long as I am in an unredeemed body. It is part of my physical body, but it is more than that. It is an impetus to sin. The devil, of course, is a personal being, a fallen angel bent on destroying you on account of his long war against God. We'll probably have at least one study where we take a look at the origins and the strategies of the devil. But you already know that he's a fallen angel bent on destroying you. He and his followers are experts at using the world to appeal to your flesh to bring you back into slavery to sin. Let me give you one prime contemporary example of the three working together against all of you. One of the devil's most effective strategies today happens to be pornography. The world system that he rules over has relaxed most moral standards and simultaneously made pornography available to almost anyone at any given moment. And so that's the devil in his... uh, uh, you know, rulership, as it were, of of the world has brought the world to a place by his influence where there are almost no morals anymore, where almost anything goes, uh, certainly things that are way beyond the boundaries of Scripture when it comes to human sexuality, 
And there are means and methods now more so than ever before in human history for anyone, anywhere, at any time to uh, partake of this immoral activity. You could be on your cell phone right now looking at pornography while I'm teaching the Bible. You probably are not uh, because we have laser beams. Uh, no, that's not true. But that's the world we live in, and it's, it's a deteriorating world. It is, it's, a, it's a train wreck when it comes to the relaxation of standards regarding human sexuality. And I don't need to tell you that Christians, though we still are, you know, stemming the tide, you know, our finger is in the dike, as it were, and the rest of the thing is, is just about ready to explode. Uh, now, all of that appeals to the lust of the flesh that we find lingering in our minds. None of this would mean anything uh, except that there happens to be that in our flesh that desires this uh, sin and this uh, behavior. It's destroying marriages. It's destroying churches, not to mention how it undermines society as a whole. Three quick statistics. I mean, there are a million of them we could cite. Fifty percent of Christian men, 20 percent of Christian women. Now, this is a huge amount of people in the church. And I would say the numbers must be higher because I think people are lying when they're asked these questions. Uh, 50% of the men in the church and 20% of the women admit to being addicted to pornography. Not just have you seen pornography, do you ever look at it? They say we're addicted to pornography. The average age when a child is exposed to pornography is 11. I've heard it as low as 5, uh, but certainly it's going down each year. And uh, I, it's just a crazy world that we live in when kindergartners have cell phones, smartphones. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't need to tell you that there is really no way to block this stuff from coming uh, to your device. Uh, it is the devil using the world against your flesh to rob, to kill, and to destroy. It's a perfect, sadly, perfect tragic example of this trifecta at work. The devil influencing the world and then using it to incite your flesh to destroy your life and the lives of others. To wage spiritual warfare as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, you must be aware of these enemies working in harmony against you. It's, it's always helpful to know uh, something about your enemy, to study your enemy. Even in the world of sports, you study game film, right? Uh, and it's so important that if you end up with the other team's playbook, they penalize you. They, you know, they do something. Wasn't it Bill Belichick a few years ago got in trouble because he did something like that? He stole a playbook or he, he was miking somebody or something. And so it's very important to know your enemy. These are our enemies. But more than that, you and I must believe that having been delivered from the power of darkness and conveyed into the kingdom of His Son, we need not yield ourselves to these enemies. Now, I'm not suggesting you will never sin. You will. I will. We will until we are free from our flesh and in our glorified bodies. I am suggesting that we can be successful as soldiers battling the world, the devil, and the flesh. So right from the beginning here, talking about spiritual warfare, you need to know what your enemy is all about, 
where it's coming from, and you need to have hope that you have the upper hand in this battle. And that's because we are not alone battling against these foes and forces. If we were, we'd be toast. God empowers us through His indwelling Holy Spirit through our relationship with Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 1, verses 19 through 22, the Apostle Paul explained it like this. Just take these verses in. He said, "...the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. All that you can get out of there is that Jesus triumphed over the kingdom of Satan at the cross. And since we are in him, seated with him in heaven, we can draw from his triumph and triumph ourselves. These verses describe... Uh, the Lord over these principalities and powers and us seated with Him, spiritually speaking, making us over them as well in the sense that we need not yield to them anymore. They have no authority in our life. Now, I mentioned earlier that Jesus had bound the strong man. He used that illustration. But when He was rejected, Satan was left loose and He remains on the loose robbing and killing and destroying. You see, when um, you see Jesus in His second coming, I've mentioned this a lot on Sunday morning. It's a fascinating uh, analogy to me. In his, at His second coming, one of the first things Jesus does is He has the devil bound and thrown into the abyss, and He establishes the kingdom of heaven on the earth. And so Jesus, I believe in the Gospels, when He said, hey, I, I am by, you know, that the strong man is bound, it was His way of saying, and He will continue to be bound should we establish the kingdom at this time. But the Jews rejected that kingdom, and so Satan is, was allowed to be loosed and continue as the God of this age. And so He may not be bound, but if you are a believer, Neither can he hold you captive against your will. You've been set free from that. Colossians 2.15, we read, having disarmed principalities and powers, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, meaning the cross. And so we see here that Satan and his hordes have been disarmed at the cross for those who have come to the cross and are saved. Likewise, there are passages that tell us that we no longer need yield ourselves to the flesh or be overcome by the world. And not only that, as we share the gospel, we plunder the possessions of the strong man, those who are still held captive by him. When they hear the gospel and receive it, they are set free from his bondage. So the devil is loose. He's doing his work using the world and appealing to the flesh. But all of that need not destroy us, it need not touch us, it need not bring us down because we have triumphed over it with Christ at the cross. We do not bind Satan. I've mentioned this many times. I, I've prayed this way, you've prayed this way probably. Lord, bind the devil. Well, the devil is going to be bound in the future. Right now, he is unbound but the Lord does this for us 
when we release those he holds bound. We plunder his kingdom with the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. So it's not so much a matter, if you want to pray correctly, it's not so much a matter of God binding the devil. It's of us freeing those that are bound by sharing the gospel with them. If there is a key then to spiritual warfare, it is simply this. It is to be and to go on being spirit-filled. Alone, we would be no match for our enemies. I mentioned Jesus in his temptation, uh, and we'll have a lot more to say about that. We'll, we saw it on Sunday morning, but we'll revisit it here on Wednesday night at some point because it's so important. But we see, we see the devil himself come to Jesus Christ who has set, voluntarily set aside the prerogatives of his deity to act and live as a spirit-filled man. We see him soundly defeat the devil in one-on-one combat using nothing but the Word of God empowered by the Spirit of God. It's profound, really. If you thought of this as, as Jesus as God versus Satan, a created being, you need to not think of it that way. Yes, Jesus was and is and always remains God. But in that encounter, he was just like you and me, only totally filled and driven and led by the Spirit of God, totally filled with the Word of God. And he stands as an example to us of the great potential that we have to defeat the devil. And and those temptations, I mean, they came right to where Jesus was struggling or right to where he would be the most tempted, physically uh, hungry and tired, um, all the way to, hey, you don't need to go to the cross to have the kingdoms of the world. But the, the Lord knew that he had to go to the cross to defeat the kingdom of darkness and to offer the kingdom of heaven. And so he, he overcame that temptation in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when I say the Spirit... We have a tendency, well, okay, yeah, we're filled with the Spirit. But I think we need to understand how profound this is. And, and I guess in a very practical way, the next time somebody is tempted to click, they need to know, I have power to not do that. I, this is a way, way less of a temptation than my Lord Jesus Christ endured for me in the Judean wilderness. I have everything that he had and more, in one sense, to resist the devil's use of the world to appeal to my flesh. And, and so right from the get-go, we need to know that as soldiers, we're going to be bruised and bloodied, but we need not suffer defeat. Alone, we would be no match for these enemies. Uh, and when we're not walking with the Lord, when, when we're not firing at all cylinders, we're, we're toast. Alone, we're no match for them, but we are never alone. Amen? All right, so it'll be an exciting series as we get deeper into it.